This is Squirrel and Moose for May 18th, 2017. I'm Dylan Wilbanks. And I'm Kyle Weems. You could be more enthusiastic, Kyle. I, I'm Kyle Weems. Yeah, I, I was trying to go for, like, mature. I guess I could have gone for thrilled. Which isn't easy for me. I mean, it really depends on the moment. So, so here's something I learned, because I was watching, and I haven't mentioned this to you, but I, I was... I was watching something with Ira Glass. Okay. No, Ira Glass. That's my yep. life. I'm Ira Glass. One of the things he said, and I had never thought about this, is if you lower your voice slightly, yes, then you talk a little slower and a little clearer. And so one of the things he says he does is he lowers his voice slightly and talks a little and, and talks a little slower, and it and it helps him. So that's why have he better sounds diction. the way he sounds. Which is really weird because Ira Glass to me sounds like, this is American life. I'm Ira Glass. Imagine S- what he sounds like normally. I mean, I, ima- I imagine normally he probably sounds like um, uh, Fran Drescher. That's, that's funny. It's terrifying that that's a real voice. Like, when you first watch the show, and this is really dated reference... Back in the day, you would assume that it was affected because who would really sound like that? And then yeah. you'll see her on a news program or a talk show, and that's just her normal voice. Yes, it's it's I mean, amazing. It's weird. It's yeah. weird. It is. And weird. the weird thing about it to me as well was um, that she was the nanny was on TV about the same time as Friends, obviously, and or they had an overlap. And Chandler's girlfriend was Janice, and she had the same nasally tongue to herself. <laughs> and I always wondered if that character was just trying to channel Fran Drescher. That's an, that's an excellent question. Uh, or if it's so, like they came from, say, the same part of the country, and that's like a regional accent. Which yeah. would be a weird regional accent, if you think about it. That's true. So... While we're on the subject of old things, because, my lord, um, the nanny was on TV from 1993 to 1999. We're dating we're passing, now. Yeah, so, hi. So, we're, we're passing, a, I was mentioning that the fifth element is 20 years old this month. Which is um, kind of crazy for me. I mean, that's, so I'm going to be 40 mm-hmm. uh, in August. So, uh, I know, I'm a few years behind you. So that means that um, Fifth Element is now going to be closer to my my birth than the present. So, mm-hmm. I'm getting up there. Yeah, well, Fifth Element... Still amazing. It's still well. amazing. Well, I mean, the weird thing about the Fifth Element is when it came out, there was a lot of... This is weird and crazy and strange and, and French and Basson and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know what to do with it. And then it faded. And then right. it got... Mila Jovovich became big. You know, Bruce Willis is Bruce Willis. Gary Oldman was Gary Oldman. Um, then it went on TV, of course. It was being shown on just about every, you know, TBS, TNT, Turner Classic, whatever. You know, basically anything that would show a movie. And it became more of a cult thing. And the more it became a cult thing, the more people talked about, 
the innovativeness and the, and the and the different stylistic tone that was being taken. It was very much a fantastical science fiction, which, given what it was up against at the time, was fascinating, right? Because remember that it came out a year after Independence Day. It came out the same year as Men in Black, which also, by the way, has twenty years on it this year. Wow! Lord help us there. Um, it, it it really. And I mean, we've talked about this before on the podcast that eventually will go up, but <laughs> there is, there, there, are, there are those sort of sides of what you can take with, with sci-fi, right? I mean, on the one hand, you have that sort of DC, mar- that DC view of the world, that Star Wars episodes one to three and even four and five view of the world, which is very dark and, uh, upright and whatever. And then you have the, the guardians of the galaxy sort of view of things and, you know, men in black as well, where it's light, crazy, and a little bit funny. And then the fifth element, it's really hard because it kind of wants to fall in between the two of them. And we don't know where that fits in American sci-fi because we don't have anything comparable to the fifth element. And I think that's part of the reason why it's, hold on. Go on. Go ahead. I was going to say, there's nothing like it. Yeah. So I I think it's, you know, I I think it's fascinating to me because it is a, um, how the movie now, 20 years later, everyone's like, yeah, it's a classic. And when I remember when I saw it 20 years ago, I'm like, this is a, this is a really interesting and, and cool film. But everybody in the room was just kind of staring at it going, I don't know what to do with this. Yeah, so I caught it on the last week it was out in the theaters in my town, uh, like on a Tuesday in a matinee showing, because um, I was single and poor, so matinee movies on Tuesdays were a good investment of both my money and my time. Do you uh, remember when matinee movies were like 250 or 3 right. bucks? Do you remember the dollar that's movies? What I pay- <laughs> yes, and that... <laughs> I mean, we're aging ourselves. I mean, yeah. I remember back in the day. I mean, I paid three bucks for that film, right? You know? Yeah. And, and now I'm thinking, you know, uh, you know, the girlfriend oh, will ask, hey, you want to catch a movie during the matinee? And I'm like, why? Why does it matter? <laughs> you know? <laughs> the price is so comparable at this point yeah. to, it's just insane. Um, but yeah, no, I caught it. Like, I read the end, and I think even actually there was some problem with the film at that point, so they had to stop it and start it again. Mm-hmm. But uh, despite the the complications, um, it blew me away. Yeah. Um, but it was so in part because it was so f- freak. I, the style of it, you know, the kineticness, mm-hmm. the the cartoonish colors, but the very serious plot. Yeah. It just it was weird, but like good weird, and then nothing like it happened again. Yeah. Like apparently, was it Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets? Mm-hmm. Looks like it's going to be sort of a successor of that by the same director, right? Right, right. They saw, it. yeah. But, but it literally takes him coming back twenty years later to make a movie that is even similar to it. And it's just yeah. it's it's weird. It is weird, and it's weird how you know it really did take this long, and you know it. it it's one of the interesting things to me was it only got nominated for one Academy Award. It, it won three Caesars, Caesars, and um, one you know one at Cannes. So um, 
or at least won a prize at Cannes. It's, it's very much a European film. It's a very European sci-fi. It really so, is. So I was in when I was in France a couple of years ago. I was in France a couple of years ago. Anyway, so <laughs> there's a museum. There's the Arts and Sciences Museum, uh, Musée des Arts et Métiers. Um, my French is slowly getting better. Um, and the weird thing when you go in there is what hits you in the face is how much science and technology the French have done. And it's a lot because I think as Americans, we don't have, we have such a U.S. English sort of slant on the world that we don't really think about and we don't speak French that we don't really think about that. But as you go through it, you're just like, yeah, of course the French had their own French came up with their own computers. Of course, the French had their own satellites. Of course the French had all these other things. And you're just like, right. They have their own science. It's kind of weird. And so it's like, even that they have their own science fiction feels weird. And yet they do. You know, it's because there's sort of an exclusiveness there between French speakers and English speakers, you know? Like, we'll watch tons of, um, you know, dubbed or subtitled Chinese or Japanese martial art films. Usually Chinese, right? Mm -hmm. But it's like, if I'm trying to think about, like, the number of French language films that I've watched, like, I think it's Amelie, is that what it's called? Yeah. And... Wasabi, which is like a uh, action film with uh, oh gosh, what's his name? He's like the at this point the now classic um, French action star that shut up and everything. Oh. He was like a taxi cab driver in the first American Godzilla movie. I know that's oh. a horrible comparison, but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, kind of. That's not John Claude. No, John Claude's not. not no, not him. An actual like he did French movies. So uh, hold on, it's uh, Jean Reno. Ah, Jean Reno, yes. Yes. So so those are like the two movies that I can really think about that are French that I've seen in the last 15 years. Yeah. You know? And, and, I, and I guess to a point, I mean, you know, you know, Leon the Professional, of course. It's a classic of his. Um, yeah. yeah, I never watched The Professional, weirdly enough. I was always I mean, kind of it's... I was always kind of warned off because there's some some elements that felt a little skeevy. Yeah, I know? mean the weird thing about the movie is it does feel a little skeevy, but at the same time it also feels, um, you know, it, it, ne- it never really feels like he's he's got a sexual thing for her. It's just more, it's kind of a, a father daughter thing, but it's weird because she's not really her daughter, and you're like. It's a sorry thing where if Natalie Portman were, you know, four or five years older, there would be a lot of banging in the movie. And I think that's the thing that makes you feel a little weird about it, you know? Well, what makes you feel weirder is the scenes they decided not to do that the director had in mind. So, Well, yeah, Spaceon is very much one of those sort of guys who's like, yes, it is French. We have to have weird sex in it. Um, yeah. Spaceon is a very interesting sort of guy to read about. It's... You know, he's very, yeah, he's very French, and the French can have very different and strange attitudes about these things, and then they come over to America, and everyone just kind of stares at them going, uh, nope, (laughs) we don't do that here. Nope. So, 
yeah, it, it's anyway. I would also like to mention at this point before we move on to the next thing that Gross Point Blank is also twenty years old, which I mainly remember for the fact that it was it was it was basically you know for for a generation of us that grew up with say anything. It was kind of John Cusack grows up and does the say anything and does say anything as a hitman, so you know. And yeah, I, I, it, I love um, Cross Point Blank, I really do. And that's another one which is a very it divides people, you know. It's 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 interesting because it's like, okay, so so say anything is actually really a horrible movie. Like I love the John Cusack omnibus, as it were, of of rom coms. You know, that was my jam as a lonely 20-something um, who was um, seeking love. Um, and uh, But he's a real creeper in Say Anything. Yeah, I mean... Like, the whole iconic image of him blasting the, ra- the, the boombox over his head at his ex-girlfriend who has told him not to contact her. Mm-hmm. His whole lead up into it. I mean, when you watch, many of his characters were very emblematic of the late 80s, early 90s rom-com man who literally had nothing to offer other than that they were the protagonist. I would argue, no, 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 I would argue that I would agree, number one, that he had very (laughs) stalkerish moments in the movie and he couldn't get off of Diane. And I would agree with all those things. I would also offer that by comparison... He was probably the least skeevy of the possible men that read that. Remember, this is the period of Pretty Woman. Yes, okay, rich so that's guy. Fair, you. <laughs> I mean, rich guy, fair. prostitute. If you become a prostitute to a rich man, you too could have your Cinderella story. Yeah, that's even more messy. Um... I mean, it's still messy, right? I I can't even watch. I mean, it's hard to watch Pretty Woman. I, I, I've never liked Pretty Woman. It always felt. You know, very weird. I mean, me. I mean, you know, Ghost, which is just the weird sort of like you know, um, it's kind of a weird ghost rape thing going on. I mean, I don't understand that movie. These were big in our days, right? Um, the on the whole, I would probably rather have John Cusack being um, the, the you know representing what we were back in the late eighties, early nineties, sad boys who desperately wanted girls to like us which admittedly um, he was really good at doing he was very good at doing it and i think it, he still could do it today yeah actually, um, i kind of i kind of almost resent the fact that he's decided to try to become some sort of quote artist you know because i think honestly uh, this is gonna sound horrible but i think like when he went started going into horror and other really weird stuff that he just sort of you know um ran out of reasons to be interesting like 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 the lonely the lonely single man seeking relevance is actually probably one of his better um portrayals by mm-hmm. and large I, and that's mean to me but but there you go mm-hmm. but yeah Bruce point blank okay so so he's martin blank in that and it's weird because he's been doing you know rom-coms and all that and he's an assassin right yeah and and they play that part kind of unevenly throughout it right like you know, he has like, he kills a guy at the very beginning of the movie mm-hmm. for money, for no good reason. Then he goes to his high school reunion 
and suddenly it's typical Cusack, awkward relationship reconnecting, kindling romance. And then there's the fight scene where he has to, um, you know, uh, kill the, 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 like, Russian assassin that's come after him because he's hanging up his uh, hooks or whatever. And his best friend, who has no idea what's going on, has to help him burn the body, you know? Yeah. And then it's back to awkward comedy. And then the whole chasing action at the end being attacked in group. And it's like... And yet they kind of leave unaddressed when he's, quote, earned his love at the end. That he was a serial murderer for money. Not 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 for any good reason, justifiably, just for money. All the way up until literally the first part of the movie. Well... I mean, it's kind of dark if you think about it. Well, I love it, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 a dark movie. I would agree with that. I mean, it's it's very much it's not a movie for people who want to have a protagonist that is highly beloved, you know, but it, um, at the same time attempts to sell him that way. Like, it's a very lighthearted movie in its portrayal. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the way so, they sell it, the music, the the cinematography, the language of the characters. It's actually, ironically, very, I mean, it's a very lighthearted assassin love story. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and keep in mind, this was a period when, one thing to remember about this period is this came right after Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction was 94. Now that movie, uh and I never, course, I never liked Pulp Fiction, but okay. Kyle, I, I'm not saying it was a bad Kyle, movie. Kyle, I'm not saying it was a bad movie, Dylan. Kyle, Kyle Dylan. we're on the web. We're, we're, we're doing this right now. We're on the web. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, this is our final episode. How could you hate Pulp Fiction? I didn't say I hate it. I mean, Reservoir uh, Dogs, I can understand. Yeah, Fiction? well, Reservoir Dogs. Reservoir Dogs. Okay, if I had to choose between the two, I'd rather watch Pulp Fiction. Um... It's disjointed, asynchronous plot aside. You like the jumping back and forth in time. I didn't care much for that. Um, most of the characters weren't beloved or likable in any way. This is true. And I would argue during that period, there was a lot of that. Oh, I mean, there yeah, were... it's sure. There's the 90s guilt complex going on, but... Or whatever that was. I mean, what is that? Who who are these people? I mean, is that... It's not really Gen X's fault. We were just consuming it that was like is that boomers it was kind of it was kind of gen x's fault what what they were making the movies for us because none of those actors were gen x none of those producers and directors and writers were gen x no that's true but i i would argue that you know we were a generation that was going to be willing to buy that well yeah but i mean if you looked at our (laughs) lives growing up i suppose that we were just it was literally we were fed to that system, <laughs> you know, prepped Yeah, but, for it. but remember, we were the dark and cynical ones in all this. We were the ones that were fed up with being marketed to. We were the ones that were fed up with a lot of this stuff. And, um, you know, I, I think, honestly, that we, we, we were built to do this sort of stuff. And I, I think that... I mean, this is part of that whole Gen X, Gen Y, millennial thing, right? Is 
the millennials get all this crap for the avocado toast thing this week, right? Oh my god, that's just so stupid. But a lot of it is the same things that we heard when we were Gen Xers. Why don't we go get a job? Why are we the ones who aren't buying houses? Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? And I'm just sitting here going, I'm just trying to live my life, man. You know, I mean, you you and I both remember those days when, I mean, you, you like me, at one point had a wage where the hourly rate was in the single digits. For a, I mean, for a shocking percentage of my life. A little longer than you. But um, that was more a side effect of my career path. Yeah. yeah I, guess, I, guess, I guess I did finally break into the double digits. Yeah. My first web job, I made 25K a year. So, so my first web job, I started out at 15. Mm-hmm. And I started 10 years ago. Yeah. I was so. I was being underpaid, for sure. Mm-hmm. You were. I, I stayed at that rate for four or five years, roughly, with like mm-hmm. quarter raises. It took um, it took some shaking up, some conversation with Seattle friends, and uh, uh, for me to really kind of uh, start playing hardball. And uh, it, it definitely has um, <laughs> had had an impact on my earning potential over my life. But yeah, um, but 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 that was my fault. But um, the uh, in not seeking out more. But yeah, you're right. Like when we started, as far as like when we first entered working at all you know fast food or retail or whatever it was that was your first job it was definitely and i think for me it was like i'm trying to remember i was like california minimum wage in like 1993 or 94 and i think it was like seven something Mm -hmm. you know it was like i mean which is sad there's still people being paid that you know in like the midwest yeah i mean that's insane yeah i mean by rule you know the some states don't actually have a minimum wage. They just have to pay the minimum wage because it's a federal rule. Um, yeah. Kansas, for instance, has no actual minimum wage, but they the federal government says they have to pay seven seventy five. Yeah, an hour so it's literally the, it's the pathetic federal minimum wage is all they're doing. And what was it? Wisconsin or Michigan just voted to reduce its minimum wage. Well, um, which is bananas. Missouri voted to take away cities' rights to set a minimum wage. And that it's weird that, that we have that as a thing now, you know, that people are so hateful that constituencies that they aren't part of have something going on and they vote to remove their ability to control their quality of life. You know? I, well, I mean, that's, it's, it's a, a politics. We're, we're drifting away there. But that's we're drifting away from politics, but I do think it is quite strange and ironic personally that for a for a group of people who have yelled about local control forever to take that to take away local control by passing state level ordinances is just a little bit bizarre and that is the bizarre part because it's like i'm gonna pretend for a moment that every now and then i attempt to take the republican party for example uh at its work right you know that there's mm. an agenda that is about local uh, being more important than, say, state or federal. And, you know, it's about, you know, kind of more individualized rights, etc. And yet, when they do stuff like that, it's like, it's now it's like, oh, well, if they have to, they'll appeal, appeal to the federal to prevent the states from doing things. And if the states have to, they'll appeal to prevent cities from doing things. You know, and it's like, the, let's just be honest. We're just trying to save a certain percentage of people money is, is really mm-hmm. what you're doing. 
And which is really pathetic because that was never their actual goal as a party, you know? Like, that's not what the majority of their voters want. It's not what the majority of their population benefits from. It's literally just what the bankrollers want. (laughs) And it's like, and it's, it's, it's so nakedly ambitious at this point. It's no longer being folded into a social agenda. It's just, well, we can do it, so let's do it. Like, is it North or South Carolina? Whichever one has just gone completely bananas. Uh, North Carolina's gone bananas. South Carolina seems to be bringing itself back to reality. Right, North Carolina. I mean, they're just nakedly trying... Like, they were trying to permanently reduce the governor's power because the governor was now Democrat, you know? Yeah. And they literally just said outright, it's not in our interest to permit the opposition party to have authority. America. America is an amazing country. So so we've deviated. Moving on. So so let's, let's quickly wrap up and back and say... Good movies came out 20 years ago. If you guys haven't seen Gross Point Blank or The Fifth Element or Men in Black, go check them out. And if you haven't seen them, then I don't know what to do with you. Well, also, some, if... some some might be younger, so they may have not, for some reason, been raised in a household that understood good movies. Okay. It's a possibility. I have no idea who sent me photos. I got sent photos by somebody. I'm sorry. Well, hopefully I'm, I'm reading my hopefully... email as you, as you go on about Men in Black. Let's talk about <laughs> appliances. I'm feeling really valued here, Dylan, as a podcast partner. Okay, so appliances. So um, I happen to be in a Slack channel with you. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that in that channel, you mentioned to me um, that you've been doing meals with an appliance called uh, Instant Pot. And I, Yeah. And I am unfamiliar, actually. I, I guess this is some sort of phenomenon, but I'm unfamiliar with Instant Pot. So Instant Pot's kind of a cult thing right now. Everybody and their dog seems to be getting into the Instant Pot. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm late to the party. I you are it. very late to the party, but that's that's pretty typical. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's true. It's true. It's true. <laughs> so the, it's, what, it's what's called an electric pressure cooker. And Okay, wait, how does that work? So a classical pressure cooker is you apply heat to the, you know, it's basically you have a a sealed top. Um, so any yeah. pressure cooker is essentially a sealed a sealed vessel Add in which pressure. you raise in which you raise the pressure of what's inside of the of the um, device so of the of the vessel so that it's upwards of you know. 15, 20 pounds per pressure in there. Um, when you raise the pressure, you lower the boiling point of water. Mm-hmm. And this means that you can actually cook it hotter without making it boil. And the result is that things cook a lot faster at that, yeah. at that particular temperature. So there, there's an electric pressure cooker. The primary difference is where a stovetop pressure cooker it's a little hard to control of heat and has the rare side effect of leaving dinner on the ceiling. Um, the electric pressure cooker can do that. Luckily it doesn't, but because it's a heating element, it actually ha- it actually has more of a expand contract um, sine wave sort of experience with it. So it's actually much more measured and controlled. So, so it's a standalone pressure- appliance. They plug right. in, and, right. and it's what, what what would a non-electric pressure cooker be like? Are we just talking about st- st- like a sealed container that's oven oven heated? 
No, it's never oven heated. It's stove heated. Stove um, heated. You That's don't want to put it in the oven because... No, no, that'd be insane. Yeah. For most of them, there's a rubber gasket that actually holds it down. So the the um, electric ones don't have a rubber gasket. You literally... It just... It, it, it locks together. And... So it's more of a it's more of a double bind thing. The reason that you use a rubber gasket, and I'm really going down the weeds of pressure cookers, That's on, okay. these, on these stove top ones is because rubber um, expands and contracts, and it can also go. It has a better chance of actually not only setting but also of you know of holding things together, um, and it also will hold together at a higher pressure than a seal will. Less likely uh, to explode. See, right. see, my prior experiences with pressure cookers, and this is why I'm asking, is I've never used one in the um, house. But uh, when I was 26, I spent about three months working at a – actually, no, it was only about two months – working at a Kentucky Fried Chicken, mm-hmm. which uses a big industrial-scale uh, oil pressure cooker, right, uh, for mm-hmm. the chicken. Um, yep. Which was uh, – a dangerous, giant, terrifying device, but like installed as huge units, right? It wasn't like, you know, attached to anything else. Um, and uh, I went through a pair of shoes in those two months because the amount of uh, chicken fat and salt on the floor just ate through the soles like nobody's business. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So those things were terrifying. So I, I wasn't quite sure in the context here. So now that you've caught me up, thank you. Um, but so anyway, you've got one of these things. That's one of these Instant Pots. Which everyone knows about, but other than me. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So an Instant Pot is a... Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating device. Um, because, number one, it's so popular with the kids right now. Two, it has a bunch of different buttons on it. So you can do a bunch of different things. Like, one of the settings is the yogurt setting. So Wait, what? You could make yogurt with it. I'm not kidding. It can also be a rice cooker. It could also be a pressure cooker. It's essentially a device for people who have always wanted to be able to say, I need to make something good. I need to make it relatively fast. I don't want to put a lot of effort into it. Oh, wait, I can do this. And that's pretty much what it does. So well, that sounds pretty cool. So on the plus side, and having worked with pressure cookers before, it behaves exactly like a pressure cooker, which is a positive. Um, and I... I actually, tonight, I made lentils for dinner. Lentils being one of those things that pressure cookers and I, we get along really well when it comes to lentils. So pressure cooker lentils, the funny thing is a lot of people will just do lentils as lentils because they only take half an hour. But I I like the pressure cooker because I can shave 15 minutes off of it and I can absolutely put the screws to it. So... I had, you know, I loaded up at, you know, I loaded up at five thirty and have dinner on the table a little after six. So, um, or I guess really loaded up at six thirty and had off the table at seven. I guess my brain is still on standard time. Um, <laughs> so that's the plus side. I mean, there there are obvious minus sides. One is it's a cult. It is an absolute cult. Okay. Okay. The people I have met who are absolutely over the moon ecstatic about this tend to be people who are paleo vegan um celiac um 
they're people who have very particular diets. And they... So the recipes you run into um, are often very centered on those diets. Some of which are weird. Yeah. Some of which are understandable from a medical perspective. Some of which are weird. Um, and so finding a good recipe has been a bit of a chore because it's like, for instance, I want to make a decent, you know, it's a, it's a device you can make a pot roast in an hour. When was the last time you could make a pot roast in an hour, right? And so I, I made it. I can't think of one. Yeah, and I made it, but I ended up having to, to triangulate between three or four different recipes because, <laughs> you know, they're they're all at sites like, um, you know, they're they're at sites like um, bushdid911.gourmet.com, or um, you know, the um, the 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 healthy healing um, anti-inflammatory um, and, and um, we uh, tree nuts are of the devil dash gourmet.blogspot.com so, so you're saying that the the recipes are a little hippie that you're having to deal with very specific the recipes are a little the recipes are a little i wouldn't use the term hippie because <laughs> the thing about hippies is that hippies are well-intentioned and stoned <laughs> these are well-intentioned and I don't think they use weed. I think that they're really sincere about their beliefs. And I want to be clear, I mentioned celiacs, and I have a lot of friends who are celiac, and I totally understand it. I have been as... I am a highly accommodating person with celiacs, vegans, whatever. But on a certain level with, with this, you get a certain kind of person who not only believes that their particular method of eating is the best thing for them it is the best thing for everybody and how dare you even question how good or bad something oh, okay. is so so i'm with you there so it's a brief aside related to that so um since about december i've been wheat free and dairy free on doctor's orders uh mm. because of some sort of uh as of yet uh unsure stomach condition that may or may not be related to uh you know um uh sensitivities right and mm. uh it's uh it's been a sharp learning curve so to speak, you know, on uh, what I can enjoy and what I have to go without. And um, fortunately, I live in the Pacific Northwest, so I am able to go to restaurants and actually eat something as opposed to being like, you know, uh, stuck at home forever. But there are all these faddish, crazy, hypnotic, you must eat these things, super diets, right? Yeah. When I will be like, hey, do you have this without such and such with a new waiter? I almost always follow up with, I have a genuine medical condition because I don't want to be one of those people like paleo, yeah. you yeah. know, like there's a number, like I can eat paleo because ironically dairy and wheat and any kind of gluten are things that they believe that ancient man didn't eat, which they're crazy. But the point is that's their belief. But as a consequence of it, I'm able to eat anything that they have. Um, yeah. But they're also so non-scientific and insane. I hate being associated with these trendy, you know, diets, basically. Mm-hmm. To call them diets is really kind of a uh, a misnomer, if you ask it. Faddish, cultish eating practices is yeah. really what it is. So, so I hear you. So what you're saying is when you're surrounded by a cloud of that with this appliance of yours, 
looking up the recipes to determine what you're doing might require a little bit of uh, experimentation on your part to get away from those weird edges. Yeah, I mean, I, and and part of it is I, I have come to believe in the power of the pressure cooker, right? What <laughs> you've come around. I've come around. I put my hands in the pressure cooker and it been burned. But the the whole point is that there are certain things for which pressure cookers are wonderful. For instance, making your own stock. Um, okay. You want to, you know, normally making your own stock is a six to eight hour operation. You can do that in a pressure cooker in one to two hours. Wow. Really? Yeah. So, you know, you basically, by the, the increased... The increased pressure and, and temperature um, mean that you can actually extract the goodness from the bones and the car and the and the connective tissue much faster. So big big ups there. That's a huge one, right? Um, the fact that this thing has nine different settings. I'm not kidding. It has nine <laughs> settings. You can boil eggs in it. You can make rice in it. So what you you're really make- saying is, I can replace my whole kitchen with it. This is one of the things that people love about it is you can replace your whole kitchen. Now, mind you, I'm not a big fan of the rice mode in this thing. So okay, so I'm I'm actually was curious about that one because I do have a rice cooker, and I have a very small apartment. So if I was ever to try one of these magical devices of yours, something would have to go from the counter. So what's wrong with it? Is it it too wet at the end? Is it too gummy? What's the? Well, the, the the because it's. It's just technological. It's a decent rice cooker. It's not a great rice cooker. Not I have really a Zoji Rushi. I have a Zoji Rushi rice cooker. The ones that first brought us the idea of Fuzzy Logic. Okay. And Fuzzy Logic rice cookers are a amazing device. They so are. So what are we because... talking about here with Fuzzy Logic rice cookers? I'm. What does that mean? So Fuzzy Logic rice cookers were came out in the in the latter part in the, in the late 80s and the early 90s and have improved since then and the idea was it was the first time they took a microchip and applied it to um these electrical devices and what it did was it actually sensed weight temperature changes in these things and would know because of the way things how things moved around when the rice was actually done or not and oh, I see. So it, it 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 would it would determine when the rice was done, not based on a preset timer, but based right. on a number of variables that it would say the rice I think is done. And and I know people who swear by stovetop method. And the thing for me of a stovetop method is, I only make two kinds of rice in the stovetop method: incredibly sticky and incredibly burned. Usually both. Whereas a rice cooker. I am a long grain person. I like my long grain rice and it makes it exactly the way you think it would be made. And it's never worse, never better. (laughs) And it's, it's, it's a beautiful device because of what it does. And a, and this, and the, and the instant pot is good at it, but it's not, it just doesn't have that je ne sais quoi that a Japanese rice cooker has the utter, beauty and power of just watching it go yeah your rice is done yeah, uh, see, but you have to use the green cup here for this and the red and the whatever you have to do the numbers <laughs> exactly the way they are and it's, there, it's there a are weird specific system details. 
there there are specific details. There's always details, right? Right, like like yeah, no. I I stopped using the stovetop method for rice when I had Japanese friends who were like, We don't we don't use the stovetop. We just use the rice cooker. Just trust the rice cooker. And and from who I and from people I've talked to who, who are Asian, the rice cooker is to them what the microwave is to us. It's like how did we ever live without this thing? <laughs> um, so, for so, on the one hand, I would never get rid of my rice cooker. On on the other hand, it has meant that I can dispose of my uh, slow cooker because it has a slow yeah. cooker setting. And honestly, the nice things about the thing it does really well in terms of pressure cooking is exactly the things that the thing it does well in terms of slow cooking. Right, because it's like the amount of heat you need to apply to it, how you need to apply it, et cetera, et cetera. It knows how to cycle, and it's electric, so it it has that slower curve versus um, gas, where it kind of all over the place. So, yes, am I getting rid of something? Absolutely, I'm getting rid of one of my. I'm getting rid of my one of my things, but you will pry my you'll pry my <laughs> rice cooker from me. My my, you know. What I what I love is we've probably just spent the last six minutes talking about rice cookers, Dylan. Uh, you know, I've really considered that. What's we should probably wrong just become that? nothing's wrong, wrong with that. that. We should become a food podcast. Um, we will eat and discuss our cooking. If there's technology involved. It's just an extension. It doesn't. It doesn't even web. matter. Uh, the technology uh, for me, but no, I hear you. I hear you. The point is, you're saying is that you will be dead before your rice cooker is removed from your kitchen. Um, unless it breaks, in which well, case, you know, in which case, goodbye. Yeah, I mean, but the, but this thing is a su- as a suitable replacement, even if it's not an equivalent replacement. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it it could if I if you were to ask if you were to give me one appliance and say I could only have one appliance for the rest of my life, then I would probably choose the instant pot. That, and that's, that's probably going and that's probably going to be a poll quote for the rest of my life. Unfortunately, I, I love it. it. Is we're gonna we're gonna make it a thing. It's gonna have a Dylan Wilbanks under it. Uh, how long have you had it? A week. A week, and it's already made that deep of an impression on you. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not kidding. One of the things that I absolutely love about it is the fact that um, it solves one of the biggest problems I've always had with pressure cookers. Um, which is? Which is that um, pressure cookers are just are just finicky things to work with, right? Because you have to nail the temperature just right because you don't want to boil it off you don't want all the steam to go but you want to have a teensy bit of steam but not a ton of steam and the seal's got to be right so you have to change you have to change out the gasket at certain points etc 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 the point is it makes it safer and easier to use yeah i mean it's safer on a particular level you know so um it's, um, okay. Okay. You know, I, I didn't mean to overstate. I it mean, is still a pressurized object in your kitchen. It's it's a less finicky fresh pressure cookers. Pressure cookers are notoriously finicky things to work with. And the thing is, the better the ones you can get now, um, like the um the the ones that are the latch top ones that have the built in um vents. The built-in, um, you know, you know, slide in, slide off sort of things versus the classical weighted ones where you had a, you had a weighted 
valve that sat on top of it, and the weight was actually what we it would hold the pressure in. It would wobble as it went above a certain level. Um, those are actually pretty slick. It's just they're still a little finicky. They're not as finicky as the old ones. Um, it's nice to have a pressure cooker that it is a little slower than than a than a stovetop pressure cooker, but we're talking you know five minutes every hour sort of slow but it's a lot less finicky and a less finicky pressure cooker means i can you know not just that but they also have the ability to then say all right when you're done come back to pressure and keep it warm until it's ready or um i'm gonna vent the pressure and i'm gonna let it sit and you'll be able to keep it warm until it's ready etc 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 it's like those are all wonderful things to have. It's like it's essentially like what would happen if you took a pressure cooker and you crossed it with a with a with a crock pot, because a crock pot is one of the mo- is one of the classical fire and forget um, methods for making dinner for families that are busy. It right. just requires you at eight in the morning to make sure you turn the damn thing on and you turn it to low because if you turned it off, you didn't turn it on, you turn it to high or whatever else, you come home and there would be this you know, dry charred remain of what was <laughs> you were supposed to eat that night or a completely rotted thing that you would not want to touch because it will probably kill you because it was made of chicken. Right. So, but yeah, no, you, you yeah. said it and go. So now it's got the advantage of that. Plus the benefits of a pressure cooker is really yeah. what you're saying. Exactly. So you're a big so, fan. So yeah, I mean, it's a lot better. So, um, I actually want to mention something web related. If you don't. Okay. Know. I'm kind of curious about that now. So, um, I don't know if you saw this week that um, Mavo came out. You know, it's interesting because we didn't discuss this before the show. Um, but I was just thinking about Mavo. Um, so, so, yeah, um, go ahead and explain that. For so, the idea of Mavo is to. So, first off, what is Mavo? So, Mavo is a framework. Um, that is more HT, far, way more HTML than it is uh, JavaScript. Um, In fact, the idea it's, is, it's presented as the conceit of it is that you're only using HTML. Right. That the that you, that they've collapsed um, the model view and the controller all the way down into HTML, which is kind of crazy, but they pulled it off and. What's interesting about it to me is how similar it feels to um, Vue and Angular, but is not because it, it misses. It's missing that. It's missing the MVVM nature of it, and it's missing the the JavaScript pieces, which I, I think is a positive because it's kind of feels like it's making a language that is going to be meant for somebody who doesn't want to write, um, doesn't want to have to learn how to code. They know HTML really well. I think it closes an old loop that we've always had. I mean, I think it finally closes one of the old loops that we've always had, which is way back in the late 90s. The question that was put in front of you was, do you want to be a web developer or do you want to be a web designer? And there was... Right. It wasn't, that was back and, when that was a question. And that was a question because it was an either or. Because if you said you wanted to be a web developer, you had to go do JavaScript and by extension .NET and blah, 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 and a few other things. Um, 
ASP, JSP, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you chose to be a web designer, then you were going to live in the world of HTML and CSS. But the weird thing was that if you were a web designer, you were pretty much guaranteed to make $15,000 a year. If you chose to be a web developer, you had a chance of making a lot more money. But the funny thing was that you would still not make as much as, say, an application developer. Yep. And then, oh, I don't know, was it Node that finally popped open the idea for for web de- for the for the classical developer that maybe they can come back over to the side? And all of a sudden, I mean, like the most the most popular language in the world right now is JavaScript. Good old maligned JavaScript. Which is really annoying because if you were like a, say, developer that was using JavaScript more exclusively, I don't know, a front-end developer. I always feel like the term front-end developer has multiple meanings, but one of those people. Suddenly you're playing like a rear guard action as all these, quote, classical apps slash backend slash server side developers are suddenly charging into your territory. Mm-hmm. And then throwing down their practices and their weird esoteric arcana and suddenly you had Angular with dependency yeah. injections and and just shoot me in the face mm-hmm. after a certain point. It was terrifying. <laughs> it's like, yeah. wait a minute, what? what? What's going on? Why is this being taken over? Why are we doing this? Um, and uh, thankfully, uh, you know, some of the subsequent libraries and, or frameworks, depending on how you want to label them that day of the week, uh, you know, have gotten easier. But what I think is interesting about Mavo, and I haven't used it, Mm-hmm. And I barely read up on it so far. Um, been a busy work week. Uh, is you know we don't need to be attached to those complicated ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was John Alsop who was uh, talking very glowingly about it. And um, one of the things that he was saying was basically to the fact of you know we don't need this. We don't need to present this as a conceit for these are for non-developers who want to make things. Mm-hmm. You know, developers should embrace simple whenever possible. Because complication isn't a benefit in its own right. So I'm excited to kind of really see what this is capable of doing. And it looks like, on first blush, quite a bit. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's the fascinating piece for me is it doesn't feel that weird. What it feels like to me is a... You know, maybe we maybe we shouldn't present it as the easier way of doing things. I think I think we do that because we still malign HTML, and HTML is a wonderful, beautiful, powerful language. Um, but we have maligned it because HTML is a presentation language, and, and the reality is that most of what we do with the web is presentation. Uh, you know, one of the great struggles I've always had is having to explain to developers classical middle back developers <laughs> the presentation side of things because they're like they literally are used to it spits up a thing on a on a on a seal on a on a command line screen on a terminal that tells you what it's supposed to do it's like that's great that's awesome that's not how it's going to work because you're not designing it for you you're designing it for all these people so it, it that piece of it is interesting to me. I'm not sure what to think of it yet because I haven't played with it. Um, yeah, I same think, here. You know, and I, I think that there's an opportunity here. I, I think, I think this slots in well. In, you know, it's like we've we've had this, we've had the spectrum that's slowly been building up piece by piece, in terms of how 
how heavy should the code be? Um, which at the far end is things like GWT, where it's written in Java and it spits out HTML. And it's very hard and it's very solid and it's really hard to move those things around. Um, and then as you step further close, any of this, as you move down the spectrum, you start running to things like Angular, or excuse me, Node is a better example, where it's you're starting to see more of the presentation code moving mixing in, but it's not there yet. You you start seeing things like um, Angular, where the presentation pieces are interlinked and 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 woven into the code itself. It's it's half templating, half code, and it, it can be a real mess because of what's there. And view view alongside it, you end up with a lot of a pretty solid break between JavaScript and HTML if you want to have it. And you end up just essentially having HTML as a templating language. Um, and then you, you, you move further down the line and you start running into, um, you know, things that are even more templatized, things that use mustache, things that use, um, you know, uh, fully use mustache, things that fully use ES6 and stuff like that. It's like the last piece that's been left is what if we treated HTML, what if HTML really was not just the templating language, but was the language that we use to instruct the system what it needs to do? And that last piece, I think, is this one. And now the question is going to be, as we go forward, how is this going to shake out? Because I think at the at long last, we finally can have a full conversation about what's supposed to do what, how is it supposed to work, and now you, it's like there's finally a full array of flavors, you know, you can get chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. It's just a question of what, what's going to be best for you. For as now it's like, you really want strawberries in your, in your, you know, you want vanilla. What sort of <laughs> horrible person would want that? You're not even a real developer. Yeah, no, it, it, it will be interesting. Um, I think there's always going to be that sort of, you know, uh, guarding yourself kind of instinct that'll come from people that have really developed in more uh developed their skills and their career in more complicated frameworks mm-hmm. and then they see something simpler come mm-hmm. that is capable of doing a lot of the same things that they do on a regular daily basis and that's going to be a panic right yeah suddenly your work doesn't necessarily require the same paycheck to happen and I think that's always the concern is the balance of, you know, it's like like the notions of as AI advances, you know, we're going to reach a point where coders aren't needed, you know, or at least that's a theory, mm-hmm. you know, or designers are being handled by, you know, design is being completely artificially done um, and then you'll be replaced. And it's always a worry about the next tool, the next layer of automation. Um, but I think at the same time, it's like we should, you know. If we can do a lot of the basic interactions or basic use cases for web development more simply with like something as simple as HTML, and I mean it mm-hmm. as in simple as in it's easy to learn and understand and interact with, and you don't have to worry a lot of the logic constraints that come with more complex development uh, programming, as it were, uh, that's great. Then mm-hmm. you can spend more time moving beyond that, you know, if that's what you want. Do this quickly. Move on and do more complex stuff with your extra time. Exactly. Hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> right. We cross. We cross our fingers. We hope. So and it's, it's always a catch, of course. You know, it's like well, I don't know. I I I need to sit down and and look at it. Um, it's 
it's been only a couple of days and I haven't had really a chance to set it, but it's been kind of like a, a, a kind of a fire burning at the back of my head. I got to really check this out. I'm curious as to how much of what I do, for example, that's going to shake out. Because I think especially for front-end developers that are JavaScripters, something like this could be a nervous game-changer, you know? Mm-hmm. Because if a lot of single-page apps are suddenly being handled with no JavaScript, um, <laughs> you better iterate quickly to figure out what it is you're doing that uh, gives you your value. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I think... We're, you know, we're we're heading for one, another one of those great inflection points. You know, we had one a while back where the devs, the devs started coming over, and we started talking about what how important, you know, front end development is no longer a thing that people make fifteen thousand dollars a year of doing. It's becoming a more solid and important practice, and I think we're heading another we're heading for another inflection point where we're going to have to have a real honest conversation about what a developer actually is. And what a designer actually is. And maybe they're the same thing. And maybe we need to start treating, maybe we need to stop playing this game and maybe we need to start start thinking longer and harder about how we're going to handle these different, you know, the model, the view, the controller, the, the, the presentation, the content, and all these other things. That All these pieces that go together. And is it going to make a lot, is it going to make sense to break everything out the way that we, we have before? Or is it going to make sense to move beyond that? So... Anyway. Yeah, and we'll see. We'll see, right? Yes, indeed. And I'd like to also note here um, that we're on the web. <laughs> I at, was waiting for that. Yeah. So uh, we're on the web at scruce.me. Scruce is spelled S-Q-U-O-O-S-E dot me. Me is spelled me. Um, you can also find us on iTunes. You can find this podcast on iTunes, which is probably where you found us, or on SoundCloud, where we're squirrel hyphen and hyphen moose spelled in the conventional English way. If you want to reach us on Twitter, the hashtag is Squoose, um, our, or you can reach us on the handle Squoose Podcast, which is Squoose with the word podcast attached to the end of it. I am Dylan W. He is C.S. Squirrel, C-S-S-Q-U-I-R-E-L, two S's, not three. And um, obligatory mention of Facebook. And we got all the way through this without mentioning that I opened up my own little uh, design consultancy in the last week or so and i have my own little design consultancy last week and so and everyone's asking how do you pronounce the damn name that's what's what happens as soon as you put an accent mark in there look it wasn't look i'm sorry i just <sighs> choosing a french word is always uh you know a kind of an alarm bell anyway it's h e with a circumflex over the e which i don't remember what that's called in french um T R E, so it's pronounced etra. Okay. Because the H is silent and it's eh, eh. It's it's a short e, it's a short e. Otherwise it'd be eh. It's etra. So so it's hetra. Yeah. If it's etra, it sounds like it's from Liverpool. So <laughs> and it's not. It's French and it means beech tree. Beech so. tree. A wonderful name. Wonderful name. Congratulations. Why, thank you. And I painted my office a, a nice green color, and I have a picture of Johnny Cash giving you the finger. So, Yeah, Perfect. I appreciated your picture of the office. Indeed. It seemed inspirational. <laughs> yeah, because that's the way I feel sometimes. But anywho, I think we should put this baby to bed. Yeah, let's do it. So I'm Dylan Wilbanks. And I'm Kyle Weems. And this has been Squirrel and Moose. Have a good week. And have a great night.